Chapter Eighteen of Riders of the Purple Sage. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Laurie Ann Walden. Riders of the Purple Sage by Zane Grey. Chapter Eighteen. Oldring's Nell. Some forty hours or more later, Venters created a commotion in Cottonwoods by riding down the main street on Black Star and leading Bells and Knight. He had come upon Bells grazing near the body of a dead rustler, the only incident of his quick ride into the village. Nothing was farther from Venters' mind than bravado. No thought came to him of the defiance and boldness of riding Jane Witherstein's racers straight into the arch-plotter's stronghold. He wanted men to see the famous Arabians. He wanted men to see them dirty and dusty, bearing all the signs of having been driven to their limit. He wanted men to see and to know that the thieves who had ridden them out into the sage had not ridden them back. Venters had come for that, and for more. He wanted to meet Tull face to face. If not Tull, then Dyer. If not Dyer, then any one in the secret of these master conspirators. Such was Venters' passion. The meeting with the rustlers, the unprovoked attack upon him, the spilling of blood, the recognition of Jerry Card, and the horses, the race, and that last plunge of mad wrangle, all these things, fuel on fuel to the smoldering fire, had kindled and swelled and leaped into living flame. He could have shot Dyer in the midst of his religious services at the altar. He could have killed Tull in front of wives and babes. He walked the three racers down the broad, green-bordered village road, he heard the murmur of running water from Amber Spring. Bitter waters for Jane Witherstein. Men and women stopped to gaze at him and the horses. All knew him. All knew the blacks and the bay. As well as if it had been spoken, Venters read in the faces of men the intelligence that Jane Witherstein's Arabians had been known to have been stolen. Venters reined in and halted before Dyer's residence. It was a low, long, stone structure resembling Witherstein House. The spacious front yard was green and luxuriant with grass and flowers. Gravel walks led to the huge porch. A well-trimmed hedge of purple sage separated the yard from the church grounds. Birds sang in the trees, water flowed musically along the walks, and there were glad, careless shouts of children. For Venters, the beauty of this home, and the serenity and its apparent happiness, all turned red and black. For Venters, a shade overspread the lawn, the flowers, the old vine-clad stone house. In the music of the singing birds, in the murmur of the running water, he heard an ominous sound. Quiet beauty, sweet music, innocent laughter. By what monstrous abortion of fate did these abide in the shadow of Dyer? Venters rode on and stopped before Tull's cottage. Women stared at him with white faces, and then flew from the porch. Tull himself appeared at the door, bent low, craning his neck. His dark face flashed out of sight. The door banged. A heavy bar dropped with a hollow sound. Then Venters shook Blackstar's bridle, and, sharply trotting, led the other horses to the center of the village. Here at the intersecting streets and in front of the stores he halted once more. The usual lounging atmosphere of that prominent corner was not now in evidence. Riders and ranchers and villagers broke up what must have been absorbing conversation. There was a rush of many feet, and then the walk was lined with faces. Venter's glance swept down the line of silent, stone-faced men. He recognized many riders and villagers, but none of those he had hoped to meet. There was no expression in the faces turned toward him. All of them knew him. 
most were inimical, but there were few who were not burning with curiosity and wonder in regard to the return of Jane Witherstein's racers. Yet all were silent. Here were the familiar characteristics, masked feeling, strange secretiveness, expressionless expression of mystery and hidden power. "'Has anybody here seen Jerry Card?' queried Venters, in a loud voice. In reply there came not one word, not a nod or shake of head, not so much as dropping eye or twitching lip, nothing but a quiet, stony stare. "'Been under the knife? You've a fine knife-wielder here, one tall, I believe. Maybe you've all had your tongues cut out?' This passionate sarcasm of Venters brought no response, and the stony calm was as oil on the fire within him. "'I see some of you pack guns, too,' he added in biting scorn. In the long, tense pause, strung keenly as a tight wire, he sat motionless on Black Star. "'All right,' he went on. "'Then let some of you take this message to Tull. Tell him I've seen Jerry Card. Tell him Jerry Card will never return.' Thereupon, in the same dead calm, Venters backed Black Star away from the curb, into the street, and out of range. He was ready now to ride up to Witherstein House and turn the racers over to Jane.' "'Hello, Venters,' a familiar voice cried, hoarsely, and he saw a man running toward him. It was the rider Judkins who came up and gripped Venter's hand. "'Venters, I could have dropped when I seen them horses, but that sight ain't a marker to the looks of you. What's wrong? Have you gone crazy? You must be crazy to ride in here this way, with them horses, talking that way about Tull and Jerry Card.' "'Judd, I'm not crazy, only mad, clean through,' replied Venters. "'Mad, now, Burn, I'm glad to hear some of your old self in your voice, "'for when you come up you look like the corpse of a dead rider with fire for eyes. "'You had that crowd too stiff for throwing guns. "'Come, we've got to have a talk. "'Let's go up the lane. We ain't much safe here.' "'Judkins mounted bells and rode with Venters up to the cottonwood grove. "'Here they dismounted and went among the trees. "'Let's hear from you first, said Judkins.' You fetched back them hosses. That is the trick. And, of course, you got Jerry the same as you got Horn. Horn? Sure, he was found dead yesterday, all chewed by coyotes, and he'd been shot plumb center. Where was he found? At the split down the trail. You know where Old Ring's cattle trail runs off north from the trail to the pass. That's where I met Jerry and the rustlers. What was Horn doing with them? I thought Horn was an honest cattleman. "'Lord, Burn, don't ask me that. I'm all muddled now, trying to figure things.' Venters told of the fight and the race with Jerry Card, and its tragic conclusion. "'I note it. I note all along that Wrangle was the best hoss,' exclaimed Judkins, with his lean face working and his eyes lighting. "'That was a race. Lord, I'd like to have seen Wrangle jump the cliff with Jerry. And that was good-bye to the grandest hoss and rider ever on the sage.' "'But, Burn, after you got the horses, why'd you want to bolt right in Tull's face?' "'I want him to know. And if I can get to him, I'll—' "'You can't get near Tull,' interrupted Judkins. "'That vigilante bunch have taken to be in bodyguard for Tull, and Dyer, too.' "'Hasn't Lassiter made a break yet?' inquired Venters, curiously. "'No,' replied Judkins, scornfully. "'Jane turned his head. He's mad in love over her.' follers her like a dog. He ain't no more Lassiter. 
He's lost his nerve. He doesn't look like the same feller. It's village talk. Everybody knows it. He hasn't thrown a gun, and he won't. Judd, I'll bet he does, replied Venters earnestly. Remember what I say. This Lassiter is something more than a gunman. Judd, he's big. He's great. I feel that in him. God help Tull and Dyer when Lassiter does go after them, for horses and riders and stone walls won't save them. Well, have it your way, Byrne. I hope you're right. Naturally, I've been some sore on Lassiter for getting soft, but I ain't denying his nerve, or whatever's great in him, that sort of paralyzes people. No later than this morning I seen him sauntering down the lane, quiet and slow, and like his guns he comes black. Black, that's Lassiter. Well, the crowd on the corner never batted an eye, and I'll gamble my hoss that there wasn't one who had a heartbeat till Lassiter got by. He went in Snell's saloon, and as there wasn't no gunplay, I had to go in, too. And there, darn my pictures, if Lassiter wasn't standing to the bar, drinking and talking with Aldrin. Aldring, whispered Venters. His voice, as all fire and pulse within him, seemed to freeze. "'Let go my arm!' exclaimed Judkins. "'That's my bad arm.' "'Sure it was Aldrin. "'What the hell's wrong with you, anyway? "'Venters, I tell you something's wrong. "'You're whiter than a sheet. "'You can't be scared of the rustler. "'I don't believe you've got a scare in you. "'Well, now, just let me talk. "'You know I like to talk, "'and if I'm slow, I'll allus get there sometime. "'As I said, Lassiter was talking chummy with Aldrin. "'There wasn't no hard feelings, "'and the gang wasn't paying no particular attention. "'But like a cat watching a mouse, "'I had my eyes on them two fellers.' It was strange to me, that confab. I'm getting to think a lot for a feller who doesn't know much. There's been some queer deals lately, and this seemed to me the queerest. These men stood to the bar alone, and so close their big gun hilts butted together. I seen Aldrin was some surprised at first, and Lassiter was cool as ice. They talked, and presently, at something Lassiter said, the rustler bawled out a curse, and then he just fell up against the bar and sagged there. The gang in the saloon looked around and laughed, and that's about all. Finally Aldrin turned, and it was easy to see something had shook him. Yes, sir, that big rustler, you know he's as broad as he is long, and the powerfulest build of a man. Yes, sir, the nerve had been taken out of him. Then, after a little, he began to talk, and said a lot to Lassiter. And by and by it didn't take much of an eye to see that Lassiter was getting hit hard. I never seen him any way but cooler in ice till then. He seemed to be hit harder than Aldrin, only he didn't roar out that way. He just kind of sunk in and looked and looked, and he didn't see a living soul in that saloon. Then he sort of come to, and shaken hands, mind you, shaken hands with Aldrin, he went out. Couldn't help thinking how easy even a boy could have dropped the great gunman then. Well, the rustler stood at the bar for a long time, and he was seeing things far off, too. Then he come to and roared for whiskey, and gulped a drink that was big enough to drown me. "'Is Old Ring here now?' whispered Venters. He could not speak above a whisper. Judkin's story had been meaningless to him. "'He's at Snell's yet. Burn, I haven't told you that the rustlers have been raising hell.' They shot up Stone Bridge and Glaze, and for three days they've been here drinking and gambling and throwing of gold. These rustlers have a pile of gold. If it was gold dust or nugget gold, I'd have reason to think. But it's new coin gold, as if it had just come from the United States Treasury. And the coin's genuine. That's all been proved. The truth is, Aldrin's on a rampage. 
A while back he lost his masked rider, and they say he's wild about that. I'm wondering if Lassiter could have told the rustler anything about that little masked, hard-riding devil. Ride? He was most as good as Jerry Card. And, Byrne, I've been wondering if you know— Judkins, you're a good fellow, interrupted Venters. Some day I'll tell you a story. I've no time now. Take the horses to Jane. Judkins stared, and then, muttering to himself, he mounted Bells, and stared again at Venters, and then, leading the other horses, he rode into the grove and disappeared. Once, long before, on the night Venters had carried Bess through the canyon and up into Surprise Valley, he had experienced the strangeness of faculties singularly, tinglingly acute, and now the same sensation recurred. But it was different in that he felt cold, frozen, mechanical, incapable of free thought, and all about him seemed unreal, aloof, remote. He hid his rifle in the sage, marking its exact location with extreme care. Then he faced down the lane and strode toward the center of the village. Perceptions flashed upon him, the faint, cold touch of the breeze, a cold, silvery tinkle of flowing water, a cold sun shining out of a cold sky, song of birds and laugh of children, coldly distant. Cold and intangible were all things in earth and heaven. Colder and tighter stretched the skin over his face. Colder and harder grew the polished butts of his guns. Colder and steadier became his hands as he wiped the clammy sweat from his face or reached low to his gun sheaths. Men meeting him in the walk gave him wide berth. In front of Bevan's store a crowd melted apart for his passage, and their faces and whispers were faces and whispers of a dream. He turned a corner to meet Tall face to face, eye to eye. As once before he had seen this man pale to a ghastly, livid white, so again he saw the change. Tull stopped in his tracks, with right hand raised and shaking. Suddenly it dropped, and he seemed to glide aside, to pass out of Venter's sight. Next he saw many horses with bridles down, all clean-limbed, dark bays or blacks, rustlers' horses. Loud voices and boisterous laughter, rattle of dice and scrape of chair and clink of gold, burst in mingled din from an open doorway. He stepped inside. With the sight of smoke-hazed room and drinking, cursing, gambling, dark-visaged men, reality once more dawned upon Venters. His entrance had been unnoticed, and he bent his gaze upon the drinkers at the bar. Dark-clothed, dark-faced men they all were, burned by the sun, bow-legged, as were most riders of the sage, but neither lean nor gaunt. Then Venters' gaze passed to the tables, and swiftly it swept over the hard-featured gamesters to alight upon the huge, shaggy, black head of the rustler chief. "'Oldring!' he cried, and to him his voice seemed to split a bell in his ears. It stilled the din. That silence suddenly broke to the scrape and crash of Oldring's chair as he rose, and then, while he passed, a great gloomy figure, again the thronged room stilled in silence yet deeper. "'Aldring, a word with you,' continued Venters. "'Ho, what's this?' boomed Aldring in frowning scrutiny. "'Come outside alone. A word for you, from your masked rider.' Aldring kicked a chair out of his way and lunged forward with a stamp of heavy boot that jarred the floor. He waved down his muttering, rising men. Venters backed out of the door and waited, hearing, as no sound had ever before struck into his soul, the rapid, heavy steps of the rustler. 
Aldring appeared, and Venters had one glimpse of his great breadth and bulk, his gold-buckled belt with hanging guns, his high-top boots with gold spurs. In that moment Venters had a strange, unintelligible curiosity to see Aldring alive. The rustler's broad brow, his large black eyes, his sweeping beard, as dark as the wing of a raven, his enormous width of shoulder and depth of chest, his whole splendid presence so wonderfully charged with vitality and force and strength, seemed to afford Venters an unutterable fiendish joy, because for that magnificent manhood and life he meant cold and sudden death. Aldring, Bess is alive, but she's dead to you, dead to the life you made her lead, dead as you will be in one second. Swift as lightning, Venter's glance dropped from Aldring's rolling eyes to his hands. One of them, the right, swept out, then toward his gun, and Venter shot him through the heart. Slowly Aldring sank to his knees, and the hand, dragging at the gun, fell away. Venter's strangely acute faculties grasped the meaning of that limp arm, of the swaying hulk, of the gasp and heave, of the quivering beard. But was that awful spirit in the black eyes only one of vitality? Man, why didn't you wait? Bess was... Aldring's whisper died under his beard, and with a heavy lurch he fell forward. Bounding swiftly away, Venters fled around the corner, across the street, and leaping a hedge, he ran through yard, orchard, and garden to the sage. Here, under cover of the tall brush, he turned west and ran on to the place where he had hidden his rifle. Securing that, he again set out into a run, and, circling through the sage, came up behind Jane Witherstein's stable and corrals. With laboring, dripping chest, and pain as of a knife thrust in his side, he stopped to regain his breath, and while resting his eyes roved around in search of a horse. Doors and windows of the stable were open wide, and had a deserted look. One dejected, lonely burrow stood in the near corral. Strange indeed was the silence brooding over the once happy, noisy home of Jane Witherstein's pets. He went into the corral, exercising care to leave no tracks, and led the burrow to the watering trough. Venters, though not thirsty, drank till he could drink no more. Then, leading the burrow over hard ground, he struck into the sage and down the slope. He strode swiftly, turning from time to time to scan the slope for riders. His head just topped the level of sagebrush, and the burrow could not have been seen at all. Slowly the green of cottonwoods sank behind the slope, and at last a wavering line of purple sage met the blue of sky. To avoid being seen, to get away, to hide his trail— these were the sole ideas in his mind as he headed for Deception Pass, and he directed all his acuteness of eye and ear, and the keenness of a rider's judgment for distance and ground, to stern accomplishment of the task. He kept to the sage far to the left of the trail leading into the pass. He walked ten miles and looked back a thousand times. Always the graceful purple wave of sage remained wide and lonely, a clear undotted waste. Coming to a stretch of rocky ground, he took advantage of it to cross the trail, and then continued down on the right. At length he persuaded himself that he would be able to see riders mounted on horses before they could see him on the little burrow, and he rode bareback. Hour by hour the tireless burrow kept to his faithful, steady trot. The sun sank, and the long shadows lengthened down the slope. 
moving veils of purple twilight crept out of the hollows and, mustering and forming on the levels, soon merged and shaded into night. Venters guided the burrow nearer to the trail so that he could see its white line from the ridges and rode on through the hours. Once down in the pass without leaving a trail, he would hold himself safe for the time being. When late in the night he reached the break in the sage, he sent the burrow down ahead of him, and started an avalanche that all but buried the animal at the bottom of the trail. Bruised and battered as he was, he had a moment's elation, for he had hidden his tracks. Once more he mounted the burrow and rode on. The hour was the blackest of the night when he made the thicket which enclosed his old camp. Here he turned the burrow loose in the grass near the spring, and then lay down on his old bed of leaves. He felt only vaguely, as outside things, the ache and burn and throb of the muscles of his body, but a dammed-up torrent of emotion at last burst its bounds, and the hour that saw his release from immediate action was one that confounded him in the reaction of his spirit. He suffered without understanding why. He caught glimpses into himself, into unlit darkness of soul. The fire that had blistered him and the cold which had frozen him now united in one torturing possession of his mind and heart, and, like a fiery steed with ice-shod feet, ranged his being, ran rioting through his blood, trampling the resurging good, dragging ever at the evil. Out of the subsiding chaos came a clear question. What had happened? He had left the valley to go to Cottonwoods. Why? It seemed that he had gone to kill a man, Aldring. The name riveted his consciousness upon the one man of all men upon earth whom he had wanted to meet. He had met the rustler. Venters recalled the smoky haze of the saloon, the dark-visaged men, the huge Aldring. He saw him step out of the door, a splendid specimen of manhood, a handsome giant with purple-black and sweeping beard. He remembered inquisitive gaze of falcon eyes. He heard himself repeating, Aldring, Bess is alive, but she's dead to you. And he felt himself jerk, and his ears throbbed to the thunder of a gun, and he saw the giant sink slowly to his knees. Was that only the vitality of him, that awful light in his eyes? Only the hard-dying life of a tremendously powerful brute? A broken whisper, strange as death. Man, why didn't you wait? Bess was. And Aldring plunged face forward, dead. "'I killed him,' cried Venters, in remembering shock. "'But it wasn't that. "'Ah, the look in his eyes and his whisper!' "'Herein lay the secret that had clamored to him "'through all the tumult and stress of his emotions. "'What a look in the eyes of a man shot through the heart! "'It had been neither hate nor ferocity, "'nor fear of men, nor fear of death. "'It had been no passionate glinting spirit of a fearless foe, "'willing shot for shot, life for life.' but lacking physical power. Distinctly recalled now, never to be forgotten, Venter saw in Aldring's magnificent eyes the rolling of great, glad surprise, softness, love. Then came a shadow and the terrible superhuman striving of his spirit to speak. Aldring, shot through the heart, had fought and forced back death, not for a moment in which to shoot or curse, but to whisper strange words. What words for a dying man to whisper? Why had not Venters waited? For what? That was no plea for life. It was regret that there was not a moment of life left in which to speak. Bess was... Herein lay renewed torture for Venters. 
What had best been to Oldring? The old question, like a spectre, stalked from its grave to haunt him. He had overlooked, he had forgiven, he had loved, and he had forgotten. And now, out of the mystery of a dying man's whisper, rose again that perverse, unsatisfied, jealous uncertainty. Bess had loved that splendid, black-crowned giant. By her own confession she had loved him. An inventor's soul again flamed up the jealous hell. Then into the clamoring hell burst the shot that had killed Aldring, and it rang in a wild, fiendish gladness, a hateful, vengeful joy. That passed to the memory of the love and light in Aldring's eyes, and the mystery in his whisper. So the changing, swaying emotions fluctuated in Venter's heart. This was the climax of his year of suffering, and the crucial struggle of his life. And when the gray dawn came he rose, a gloomy, almost heart-broken man, but victor over evil passions. He could not change the past, and even if he had not loved Bess with all his soul, he had grown into a man who would not change the future he had planned for her. Only, and once for all, he must know the truth, know the worst, stifle all these insistent doubts and subtle hopes and jealous fancies, and kill the past by knowing truly what Bess had been to Oldring. For that matter he knew, he had always known, but he must hear it spoken. Then, when they had safely gotten out of that wild country to take up a new and an absorbing life, she would forget, she would be happy, and through that, in the years to come, he could not but find life worth living. All day he rode slowly and cautiously up the pass, taking time to peer around corners, to pick out hard ground in grassy patches, and to make sure there was no one in pursuit. In the night sometime he came to the smooth, scrawled rocks dividing the valley, and here set the burrow at liberty. He walked beyond, climbed the slope in the dim, starlit gorge. Then, weary to the point of exhaustion, he crept into a shallow cave and fell asleep. In the morning, when he descended the trail, he found the sun was pouring a golden stream of light through the arch of the great stone bridge. Surprise Valley, like a valley of dreams, lay mystically soft and beautiful, awakening to the golden flood which was rolling away its slumberous bands of mist, brightening its walled faces. While yet far off he discerned Bess moving under the silver spruces, and soon the barking of the dogs told him that they had seen him. He heard the mockingbirds singing in the trees, and then the twittering of the quail. Ring and Whitey came bounding toward him, and behind them ran Bess, her hands outstretched. "'Burn, you're back, you're back!' she cried, in joy that rang of her loneliness. "'Yes, I'm back,' he said, as she rushed to meet him. She had reached out for him when suddenly, as she saw him closely, something checked her, and as quickly all her joy fled, and with it her color, leaving her pale and trembling. "'Oh, what's happened?' "'A good deal has happened, Bess. I don't need to tell you what, and I'm played out.' "'worn out in mind more than body. "'Dear, you look strange to me,' faltered Bess. "'Never mind that. I'm all right. "'There's nothing for you to be scared about. "'Things are going to turn out just as we have planned. "'As soon as I'm rested, we'll make a break to get out of the country. "'Only now, right now, I must know the truth about you.' "'Truth about me?' echoed Bess, shrinkingly. "'She seemed to be casting back into her mind for a forgotten key.' Venters himself, as he saw her, received a pang. "'Yes, the truth. "'Bess, don't misunderstand. "'I haven't changed that way. "'I love you still. "'I'll love you more afterward. 
Life will be just as sweet—sweeter to us. We'll be—be married as soon as ever we can. We'll be happy, but there's a devil in me. A perverse, jealous devil. Then I've queer fancies. I forgot for a long time. Now all those fiendish little whispers of doubt and faith and fear and hope come torturing me again. I've got to kill them with the truth. I'll tell you anything you want to know, she replied, frankly. Then, by heaven, we'll have it over and done with. Bess, did Aldring love you? Certainly he did. Did, did you love him? Of course, I told you so. How can you tell it so lightly? cried Venters, passionately. Haven't you any sense of, of... He choked back speech. He felt the rush of pain and passion. He seized her in rude, strong hands and drew her close. He looked straight into her dark blue eyes. They were shadowing with the old wistful light, but they were as clear as the limpid water of the spring. They were earnest, solemn in unutterable love and faith and abnegation. Venters shivered. He knew he was looking into her soul. He knew she could not lie in that moment, but that she might tell the truth, looking at him with those eyes, almost killed his belief in purity. "'What are—what were you to—to to Aldring?' he panted fiercely. "'I am his daughter,' she replied instantly. Venter slowly let go of her. There was a violent break in the force of his feeling, then creeping blankness. "'What was it you said?' he asked, in a kind of dull wonder. "'I am his daughter.' "'Oldring's daughter?' queried Venters, with life gathering in his voice. "'Yes.' With a passionately awakening start, he grasped her hands and drew her close. "'All the time you've been Oldring's daughter?' "'Yes, of course, all the time. Always.' "'But, Bess, you told me, you let me think, I made out you were a—' "'So, so ashamed!' "'It is my shame,' she said, with voice deep and full, and now the scarlet fired her cheek. "'I told you, I'm nothing, nameless, just Bess, Aldring's girl.' "'I know, I remember, but I never thought,' he went on, hurriedly, huskily. "'That time, when you lay dying, you prayed, you—somehow I got the idea you were bad.' "'Bad?' she asked, with a little laugh. She looked up with a faint smile of bewilderment and the absolute unconsciousness of a child. Venters gasped in the gathering might of the truth. She did not understand his meaning. "'Bess! Bess!' He clasped her in his arms, hiding her eyes against his breast. She must not see his face in that moment. And he held her while he looked out across the valley. In his dim and blinded sight, in the blur of golden light and moving mist, he saw Aldring. She was the rustler's nameless daughter. Aldring had loved her. He had so guarded her, so kept her from women and men and knowledge of life, that her mind was as a child's. That was part of the secret, part of the mystery. That was the wonderful truth. Not only was she not bad, but good, pure, innocent above all innocence in the world, the innocence of lonely girlhood. He saw Aldring's magnificent eyes, inquisitive, searching, softening. He saw them flare in amaze, in gladness, with love, then suddenly strain in terrible effort of will. He heard Aldring whisper, and saw him sway like a log and fall. 
Then a million bellowing, thundering voices, gunshots of conscience, thunderbolts of remorse, dinned horribly in his ears. He had killed Bess's father. Then a rushing wind filled his ears like a moan of wind in the cliffs, a knell indeed, Oldring's knell. He dropped to his knees and hid his face against Bess, and grasped her with the hands of a drowning man. "'My God! My God! Oh, Bess, forgive me! Never mind what I've done, what I've thought. But forgive me. I'll give you my life. I'll live for you. I'll love you. Oh, I do love you as no man ever loved a woman. I want you to know, to remember that I fought a fight for you, however blind I was. I thought, I thought, never mind what I thought, but I loved you. I asked you to marry me. Let that, let me have that to hug to my heart. Oh, Bess, I was driven, and I might have known. I could not rest nor sleep till I had this mystery solved. God, how things work out! "'Burn, you're weak, trembling. You talk wildly,' cried Bess. "'You've overdone your strength. There's nothing to forgive. There's no mystery except your love for me. You have come back to me.' And she clasped his head tenderly in her arms, and pressed it closely to her throbbing breast. End of chapter 18《Chapter Nineteen of Riders of the Purple Sage》This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Laurie Ann Walden.《Riders of the Purple Sage》by Zane Gray. Chapter Nineteen. Fay. At the home of Jane Witherstein, little Fay was climbing Lassiter's knee. Does oo love me? she asked. Lassiter, who was as serious with Fay as he was gentle and loving, assured her in earnest and elaborate speech that he was her devoted subject. Fay looked thoughtful, and appeared to be debating the duplicity of men, or searching for a supreme test to prove this cavalier. "'Does oo love my new mother?' she asked, with bewildering suddenness. Jane Witherstein laughed and for the first time in many a day she felt a stir of her pulse and warmth in her cheek. It was a still, drowsy summer of afternoon, and the three were sitting in the shade of the wooded knoll that faced the sage slope. Little Fay's brief spell of unhappy longing for her mother, the childish mystic gloom, had passed, and now where Fay was there were prattle and laughter and glee. She had emerged from sorrow to be the incarnation of joy and loveliness, she had grown supernaturally sweet and beautiful. For Jane Witherstein the child was an answer to prayer, a blessing, a possession infinitely more precious than all she had lost. For Lassiter, Jane divined that little Fay had become a religion. "'Does you love my new mother?' repeated Fay. Lassiter's answer to this was a modest and sincere affirmative. "'Why don't you marry my new mother and be my father?' Of the thousands of questions put by little Fay to Lassiter, this was the first he had been unable to answer. "'Fay, Fay, don't ask questions like that,' said Jane. "'Why?' "'Because,' replied Jane, and she found it strangely embarrassing to meet the child's gaze. It seemed to her that Fay's violet eyes looked through her with piercing wisdom. "'You love him, don't you?' "'Dear child, run and play.' said Jane. 
But don't go too far. Don't go from this little hill. Fay pranced off wildly, joyous over freedom that had not been granted her for weeks. Jane, why are children more sincere than grown-up persons? asked Lassiter. Are they? I reckon so. Little Fay there, she sees things as they appear on the face. An Indian does that. So does a dog. And an Indian and a dog are most of the time right in what they see. Maybe a child is always right. "'Well, what does Faye see?' asked Jane. "'I reckon you know. I wonder what goes on in Faye's mind when she sees part of the truth with the wise eyes of a child, and wanting to know more, meets with strange falseness from you. Wait. You are false in a way, though you're the best woman I ever knew. What I want to say is this. Faye has taken your pretending to, to care for me for the thing it looks on the face.' and her little foreman mind asks questions, and the answers she gets are different from the looks of things. So she'll grow up gradually taking on that falseness, and be like the rest of the women, and men too. And the truth of this falseness to life is proved by your appearing to love me when you don't. Things aren't what they seem. Lassiter, you're right. A child should be told the absolute truth. But is that possible? I haven't been able to do it, and all my life I've loved the truth and I've prided myself upon being truthful. Maybe that was only egotism. I'm learning much, my friend. Some of those blinding scales have fallen from my eyes. And, as to caring for you, I think I care a great deal. How much, how little, I couldn't say. My heart is almost broken, Lassiter. So now is not a good time to judge of affection. I can still play and be merry with Fay. I can still dream. But when I attempt serious thought, I'm dazed. I don't think. I don't care any more. I don't pray. Think of that, my friend. But in spite of my numb feeling, I believe I'll rise out of all this dark agony a better woman, with greater love of man and God. I'm on the rack now. I'm senseless to all but pain, and growing dead to that. Sooner or later I shall rise out of this stupor. I'm waiting the hour. It'll soon come, Jane replied Lassiter soberly. Then I'm afraid for you. Years are terrible things, and for years you've been bound. Habit of years is strong as life itself. Somehow, though, I believe as you that you'll come out of it all a finer woman. I'm waiting, too. And I'm wondering, I reckon, Jane, that marriage between us is out of all human reason? Lassiter, my dear friend, it's impossible for us to marry. Why, as Fay says, inquired Lassiter, with gentle persistence. Why? I never thought why. But it's not possible. I am Jane, daughter of Witherstein. My father would rise out of his grave. I'm of Mormon birth. I'm being broken, but I'm still a Mormon woman. And you, you are Lassiter. Maybe I'm not so much Lassiter as I used to be. What was it you said? Habit of years is strong as life itself? You can't change the one habit, the purpose of your life. For you still pack those black guns. You still nurse your passion for blood. A smile, like a shadow, flickered across his face. No. Lassiter, I lied to you. But I beg of you, don't you lie to me. I've great respect for you. I believe you're softened toward most, perhaps all my people except... But when I speak of your purpose, your hate, your guns, I have only him in mind. I don't believe you've changed. For answer, he unbuckled the heavy cartridge belt, 
and laid it with the heavy swing gun-sheaths in her lap. "'Lassiter!' Jane whispered, as she gazed from him to the black, cold guns. Without them he appeared shorn of strength, defenseless, a smaller man. Was she Delilah? Swiftly, conscious of only one motive, refusal to see this man called Craven by his enemies, she rose, and with blundering fingers buckled the belt round his waist where it belonged. "'Lassiter, I am a coward.' "'Come with me out of Utah, where I can put away my guns and be a man,' he said. "'I reckon I'll prove it to you then. "'Come. You've got Black Star back, and Knight and Bells. "'Let's take the racers and Little Fay and race out of Utah. "'The horses and the child are all you have left. Come.' "'No, no, Lassiter, I'll never leave Utah. "'What would I do in the world with my broken fortunes and my broken heart?' I'll never leave these purple slopes I love so well. I reckon I ought to have knowed that. Presently you'll be living down here in a hovel, and presently Jane Witherstein will be a memory. I only wanted to have a chance to show you how a man, any man, can be better than he was. If we left Utah, I could prove, I reckon I could prove this thing you call love. It's strange, and hell and heaven at once, Jane Witherstein. Appears to me that you've thrown away your big heart on love. Love of religion, and duty, and churchmen, and riders, and poor families, and poor children. Yet you can't see what love is, how it changes a person. Listen, and in telling you Millie Earn's story, I'll show you how love changed her. Millie and me was children when our family moved from Missouri to Texas, and we growed up in Texas ways, same as if we'd been born there. We had been poor, and there we prospered. In time, the little village where we went became a town, and strangers and new families kept moving in. Millie was the belle them days. I can see her now, a little girl no bigger than a bird, and as pretty. She had the finest eyes, dark blue-black when she was excited, and beautiful all the time. You remember Millie's eyes. And she had light brown hair with streaks of gold, and a mouth that every feller wanted to kiss. And about the time Millie was the prettiest and the sweetest, along came a young minister who began to ride some of a race with the other fellers for Millie, and he won. Millie had always been strong on religion, and when she met Frank Earn, she went in heart and soul for the salvation of souls. Fact was, Millie, through study of the Bible and attending church and revivals, went a little out of her head. It didn't worry the old folks none, and the only worry to me was Millie's everlasting praying and working to save my soul. She never converted me, but we was the best of comrades, and I reckon no brother and sister ever loved each other better. Well, Frank Gern and me hit up a great friendship. He was a strappin' feller, good to look at, and had the most pleasin' ways. His religion never bothered me, for he could hunt and fish and ride and be a good feller. After Buffalo once, he came pretty near to saving my life. We got to be thick as brothers, and he was the only man I ever seen who I thought was good enough for Millie. And the day they were married, I got drunk for the only time in my life. Soon after that, I left home. It seems Millie was the only one who could keep me home. And I went to the bad. As to prospering, I saw some pretty hard life in the panhandle, and then I went north. In them days, Kansas and Nebraska was as bad, come to think of it, as these days right here on the border of Utah. I got to be pretty handy with guns, and there wasn't many riders as could beat me riding. And I can say all modest-like that I never seen the white man who could track a hoss or a steer or a man with me. 
Afore I knowed it, two years slipped by, and all at once I got homesick and purled a bridle south. Things at home had changed. I never got over that homecoming. Mother was dead and in her grave. Father was a silent, broken man, killed already on his feet. Frank Earn was a ghost of his old self, through with working, through with preaching, almost through with living, and Milly was gone. It was a long time before I got the story. Father had no mind left, and Frank Earn was afraid to talk. So I had to pick up what had happened from different people. It appears that soon after I left home another preacher come to the little town, and he and Frank become rivals. This feller was different from Frank. He preached some other kind of religion, and he was quick and passionate where Frank was slow and mild. He went after people, women specially. In looks he couldn't compare to Frank Earn, but he had power over women. He had a voice, and he talked and talked, and preached and preached. Milly fell under his influence. She became mightily interested in his religion. Frank had patience with her, as was his way, and let her be as interested as she liked. All religions were devoted to one God, he said, and it wouldn't hurt Milly none to study a different point of view. So the new preacher often called on Milly, and sometimes in Frank's absence. Frank was a cattleman between Sundays. Along about this time an incident come off that I couldn't get much light on. A stranger come to town, and was seen with the preacher. This stranger was a big man with an eye like blue ice and a beard of gold. He had money, and he peered a man of mystery, and the town went to buzzin' when he disappeared about the same time as a young woman known to be mightily interested in the new preacher's religion. Then presently along comes a man from somewheres in Illinois, and he up and spots this preacher as a famous Mormon proselyter. That riled Frank Earn as nothin' ever before, and from rivals they come to be bitter enemies. And it ended in Frank going to the meetin' house where Milly was listenin', and before her and everybody else he called that preacher, called him, well, almost as hard as Venters called Tull here some time back. And Frank followed up that call with a hoss-whippin', and he drove the proselyter out of town. People noticed, so twas said, that Milly's sweet disposition changed. Some said it was because she would soon become a mother, and others said she was pining after the new religion. And there was women who said right out that she was pining after the Mormon. Anyway, one morning Frank rode in from one of his trips to find Milly gone. He had no real near neighbors, living a little out of town, but those who was nearest said a wagon had gone by in the night, and they thought it stopped at her door. Well, tracks always tell, and there was the wagon tracks and horse tracks and man tracks. The news spread like wildfire that Milly had run off from her husband. Everybody but Frank believed it, and wasn't slow in telling why she run off. Mother had always hated that strange streak of Milly's, taken up with the new religion as she had, and she believed Milly ran off with the Mormon. That hastened Mother's death, and she died unforgiven. Father wasn't the kind to bow down under disgrace or misfortune, but he had surpassing love for Milly, and the loss of her broke him. From the minute I heard of Milly's disappearance, I never believed she went off of her own free will. I knew Milly, and I knew she couldn't have done that. I stayed at home a while, trying to make Frank Earn talk, but if he knowed anything, then he wouldn't tell it. So I set out to find Milly, and I tried to get on the trail of that proselyter. I knew if I ever struck a town he'd visited that I'd get a trail. I knew, too, that nothing short of hell would stop his proselyting. And I rode from town to town. I had a blind faith that something was guiding me. 
and as the weeks and months went by, I growed into a strange sort of a man, I guess. Anyway, people were afraid of me. Two years after that, way over in a corner of Texas, I struck a town where my man had been. He'd just left. People said he came to that town without a woman. I back-trailed my man through Arkansas and Mississippi, and the old trail got hot again in Texas. I found the town where he first went after leaving home. And here I got track of Millie. I found a cabin where she had given birth to her baby. There was no way to tell whether she'd been kept a prisoner or not. The feller who owned the place was a mean, silent sort of a skunk, and as I was leaving I just took a chance and left my mark on him. Then I went home again. It was to find I hadn't any home no more. Father had been dead a year. Frank Earn still lived in the house where Millie had left him. I stayed with him a while, and I grew old watching him. His farm had gone to weed. His cattle had strayed or been rustled. His house weathered till it wouldn't keep out rain nor wind. And Frank sat on the porch and whittled sticks, and day by day wasted away. There was times when he ranted about like a crazy man. But mostly he was always sitting and staring with eyes that made a man curse. I figured Frank had a secret fear that I needed to know. And when I told him I'd trailed Millie for near three years and had got trace of her and saw where she'd had her baby, I thought he would drop dead at my feet. And when he'd come round more natural-like, he begged me to give up the trail, but he wouldn't explain. So I let him alone and watched him day and night. And I found there was one thing still precious to him, and it was a little drawer where he kept his papers. This was in the room where he slept. And it appeared he seldom slept. But after being patient, I got the contents of that drawer and found two letters from Millie. One was a long letter written a few months after her disappearance. She had been bound and gagged and dragged away from her home by three men, and she named them Hurd, Metzger, Slack. They were strangers to her. She was taken to the little town where I found trace of her two years after. But she didn't send the letter from that town. There she was pinned in. Appeared that the proselytes, who had, of course, come on the scene, was not running any risks of losing her. She went on to say that for a time she was out of her head, and when she got right again all that kept her alive was the baby. It was a beautiful baby, she said, and all she thought and dreamed of was somehow to get baby back to its father, and then she'd thankfully lay down and die. And the letter ended abrupt, in the middle of a sentence, and it wasn't signed. The second letter was written more than two years after the first. It was from Salt Lake City. It simply said that Millie had heard her brother was on her trail. She asked Frank to tell her brother to give up the search, because if he didn't, she would suffer in a way too horrible to tell. She didn't beg. She just stated a fact and made the simple request. And she ended that letter by saying she would soon leave Salt Lake City with the man she had come to love and would never be heard of again. I recognized Millie's handwriting, and I recognized her way of putting things. But that second letter told me of some great change in her. Pondering over it, I felt at last she'd either come to love that feller and his religion, or some terrible fear made her lie and say so. I couldn't be sure which. But of course I meant to find out. I'll say here, if I'd known Mormons then as I do now, I'd left Millie to her fate. For maybe she was right about what she'd suffer if I kept on her trail. But I was young and wild them days. First I went to the town where she'd first been taken, and I went to the place where she'd been kept. I got that skunk who owned the place, and took him out in the woods, and made him tell all he knowed. There wasn't much as to length, but it was pure hell's fire in substance. 
This time I left him some incapacitated for any more skunk work short of hell. Then I hit the trail for Utah. That was fourteen years ago. I saw the incoming of most of the Mormons. It was a wild country and a wild time. I rode from town to town, village to village, ranch to ranch, camp to camp. I never stayed long in one place. I never had but one idea. I never rested. Four years went by, and I knowed every trail in northern Utah. I kept on, and as time went by, and I'd begun to grow old in my search, I had firmer, blinder faith in whatever was guiding me. Once I read about a feller who sailed the seven seas and traveled the world, and he had a story to tell, and whenever he seen the man to whom he must tell that story, he knowed him on sight. I was like that, only I had a question to ask, and always I knew the man of whom I must ask. So I never really lost the trail, though for many years it was the dimmest trail ever followed by any man. Then come a change in my luck. Along in central Utah I rounded up Hurd, and I whispered something in his ear, and watched his face, and then throwed a gun against his bowels. And he died with his teeth so tight shut I couldn't have pried them open with a knife. Slack and Metzger that same year both heard me whisper the same question and neither would they speak a word when they lay dying. Long before I'd learned no man of this breed or class, or God knows what, would give up any secrets. I had to see in a man's fear of death the connections with Milly Earn's fate. And as the years passed at long intervals I would find such a man. So as I drifted on the long trail down into southern Utah, my name preceded me, and I had to meet a people prepared for me and ready with guns. They made me a gunman and that suited me. And all this time signs of the proselyter and the giant with the blue ice eyes and the gold beard seemed to fade dimmer out of the trail. Only twice in ten years did I find a trace of that mysterious man who had visited the proselyter at my home village. What he had to do with Milly's fate was beyond all hope for me to learn, unless my guiding spirit led me to him. As for the other man, I knew, as sure as I breathed and the stars shone and the wind blew, that I'd meet him some day. Eighteen years I've been on the trail, and it led me to the last lonely villages of the Utah border. Eighteen years. I feel pretty old now. I was only twenty when I hit that trail. Well, as I told you, back here a ways, a Gentile said Jane Witherstein could tell me about Milly Earn and show me her grave. The low voice ceased, and Lassiter slowly turned his sombrero round and round, and appeared to be counting the silver ornaments on the band. Jane, leaning toward him, sat as if petrified, listening intently, waiting to hear more. She could have shrieked, but power of tongue and lips were denied her. She saw only this sad, gray, passion-worn man, and she heard only the faint rustling of the leaves. "'Well, I came to Cottonwoods,' went on Lassiter, "'and you showed me Milly's grave. And though your teeth have been shut, tighter than them of all the dead men lying back along that trail,' Just the same, you told me the secret I've lived these eighteen years to hear. Jane, I said you'd tell me without ever me asking. I didn't need to ask my question here. The day you remember when that fat party throwed a gun on me in your court, and— Oh, hush! whispered Jane, blindly holding up her hands. I seen in your face that Dyer, now a bishop, was the proselyter who ruined Millie Earne. For an instant Jane Witherstein's brain was a whirling chaos, and she recovered to find herself grasping at Lassiter like one drowning. 
and as if by a lightning stroke she sprang from her dull apathy into exquisite torture. "'It's a lie, Lassiter. No, no,' she moaned. "'I swear you're wrong.' "'Stop. You'd perjure yourself, but I'll spare you that. You poor woman, still blind, still faithful. Listen, I know. Let that settle it, and I give up my purpose.' "'What is it you say?' "'I give up my purpose. "'I've come to see and feel differently. "'I can't help poor Milly, "'and I've outgrowed revenge. "'I've come to see I can be no judge for men. "'I can't kill a man just for hate. "'Hate ain't the same with me "'since I loved you and little Fay.' "'Lassiter, you mean you won't kill him?' "'Jane whispered. "'No. "'For my sake?' "'I reckon—' I can't understand, but I'll respect your feelings. Because you—oh, because you love me? Eighteen years! You were that terrible Lassiter. And now, because you love me? That's it, Jane. Oh, you'll make me love you. How can I help but love you? My heart must be stone. But—oh, Lassiter, wait, wait. Give me time. I'm not what I was. Once it was so easy to love, now it's easy to hate. Wait. My faith in God, some God, still lives. By it I see happier times for you, poor passion-swayed wanderer. For me, a miserable, broken woman. I loved your sister, Millie. I will love you. I can't have fallen so low, I can't be so abandoned by God, that I've no love left to give you. Wait. Let us forget Millie's sad life. Ah, I knew it as no one else on earth. There's one thing I shall tell you, if you're at my deathbed, but I can't speak now. I reckon I don't want to hear no more, said Lassiter. Jane leaned against him, as if some pent-up force had rent its way out. She fell into a paroxysm of weeping. Lassiter held her in silent sympathy. By degrees she regained composure, and she was rising, sensible of being relieved of a weighty burden when a sudden start on Lassiter's part alarmed her. "'I heard hosses, hosses with muffled hoofs,' he said, and he got up guardedly. "'Where's Fay?' asked Jane, hurriedly glancing round the shady knoll. The bright-haired child, who had appeared to be close all the time, was not in sight. "'Fay!' called Jane. No answering shout of glee, no patter of flying feet. Jane saw Lassiter stiffen. "'Fay! Oh, Fay!' Jane almost screamed. The leaves quivered and rustled. A lonesome cricket chirped in the grass. A bee hummed by. The silence of the waning afternoon breathed hateful portent. It terrified Jane. When had silence been so infernal? "'She's only straight out of earshot,' faltered Jane, looking at Lassiter. Pale, rigid as a statue, the rider stood, not in listening, searching posture, but in one of doomed certainty. Suddenly he grasped Jane with an iron hand, and turning his face from her gaze, he strode with her from the knoll. See, Fay played here last, a house of stones and sticks, and here's a corral of pebbles with leaves for horses, said Lassiter stridently, and pointed to the ground. Back and forth she trailed here. See, she's buried something, a dead grasshopper. There's a tombstone. Here she went, chasing a lizard. See the tiny streaked trail? She pulled bark off this cottonwood. Look in the dust of the path, the letters you taught her, 
She's drawn pictures of birds and hosses and people. Look, a cross. Oh, Jane, your cross. Lassiter dragged Jane on, and as if from a book read the meaning of little Fay's trail. All the way down the knoll, through the shrubbery, round and round a cottonwood, Fay's vagrant fancy left records of her sweet musings and innocent play. Long had she lingered round a bird-nest to leave therein the gaudy wing of a butterfly. Long had she played beside the running stream, sending adrift vessels freighted with pebbly cargo. Then she had wandered through the deep grass, her tiny feet scarcely turning a fragile blade, and she had dreamed beside some old faded flowers. Thus her steps led her into the broad lane. The little dimpled imprints of her bare feet showed clean-cut in the dust. They went a little way down the lane, and then, at a point where they stopped, the great tracks of a man led out from the shrubbery and returned. End of chapter 19「Chapter Twenty of Riders of the Purple Sage. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Laurie Ann Walden. Riders of the Purple Sage by Zane Gray. Chapter Twenty. Lassiter's Way. Footprints told the story of little Fay's abduction. In anguish, Jane Witherstein turned speechlessly to Lassiter and, confirming her fears, she saw him grey-faced, aged all in a moment, stricken as if by a mortal blow. Then all her life seemed to fall about her in wreck and ruin. "'It's all over,' she heard her voice whisper. "'It's ended. I'm going... I'm going...' "'Where?' demanded Lassiter, suddenly looming darkly over her. "'To... to those cruel men...' "'Speak names!' thundered Lassiter. "'To Bishop Dyer, to Tull,' went on Jane, shocked into obedience. "'Well, what for?' "'I want little Fay. I can't live without her. They've stolen her as they stole Milly Earn's child. I must have little Fay. I want only her. I give up. I'll go and tell Bishop Dyer I'm broken.' I'll tell him I'm ready for the yoke. Only give me back Fay, and and I'll marry Tull. Never, hissed Lassiter. His long arm leaped at her. Almost running, he dragged her under the cottonwoods, across the court, into the huge hall of Witherstein House, and he shut the door with a force that jarred the heavy walls. Black Star and Night and Bells, since their return, had been locked in this hall, and now they stamped on the stone floor. Lassiter released Jane, and like a dizzy man, swayed from her with a hoarse cry and leaned shaking against a table where he kept his rider's accoutrements. He began to fumble in his saddle-bags. His action brought a clinking, metallic sound, the rattling of gun cartridges. His fingers trembled as he slipped cartridges into an extra belt, but as he buckled it over the one he habitually wore, his hands became steady. This second belt contained two guns, smaller than the black one swinging low, and he slipped them round so that his coat hid them. Then he fell to swift action. Jane Witherstein watched him, fascinated but uncomprehending, and she saw him rapidly saddle Blackstar and Knight. Then he drew her into the light of the huge windows, standing over her, gripping her arm with fingers like cold steel. "'Yes, Jane, it's ended, but you're not going to die her.' I'm going instead. Looking at him, he was so terrible of aspect, she could not comprehend his words. 
Who was this man with the face gray as death, with eyes that would have made her shriek had she the strength, with the strange, ruthlessly bitter lips? Where was the gentle Lassiter? What was this presence in the hall, about him, about her, this cold, invisible presence? "'Yes, it's ended, Jane,' he was saying, so awfully quiet and cool and implacable. "'And I'm going to make a little call.' I'll lock you in here, and when I get back, have the saddlebags full of meat and bread, and be ready to ride. Lassiter, cried Jane. Desperately she tried to meet his gray eyes, in vain. Desperately she tried again, fought herself as feeling and thought resurged in torment, and she succeeded, and then she knew. No, 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 she wailed. "'You said you'd foregone your vengeance. "'You promised not to kill Bishop Dyer.' "'If you want to talk to me about him, leave off the bishop. "'I don't understand that name or its use.' "'Oh, hadn't you foregone your vengeance on, on Dyer?' "'Yes.' "'But your actions, your words, your guns, your terrible looks, "'they don't seem foregoing vengeance?' "'Jane, now it's justice.' "'You'll kill him?' If God lets me live another hour. If not God, then the devil who drives me. You'll kill him for yourself? For your vengeful hate? No. For Millie Earn's sake? No. For little Fay's? No. Oh, for whose? For yours. His blood on my soul, whispered Jane, and she fell to her knees. This was the long-pending hour of fruition, and the habit of years, the religious passion of her life, leaped from lethargy, and the long months of gradual drifting to doubt were as if they had never been. If you spill his blood, it'll be on my soul, and on my father's. Listen, and she clasped his knees, and clung there as he tried to raise her. Listen, am I nothing to you? Woman, don't trifle at words. I love you, and I'll soon prove it. I'll give myself to you, I'll ride away with you, marry you, if only you'll spare him. His answer was a cold, ringing, terrible laugh. Lassiter, I'll love you, spare him. No. She sprang up in despairing, breaking spirit, and encircled his neck with her arms, and held him in an embrace that he strove vainly to loosen. Lassiter, would you kill me? I'm fighting my last fight for the principles of my youth, love of religion, love of father. You don't know, you can't guess the truth, and I can't speak ill. I'm losing all, I'm changing. All I've gone through is nothing to this hour. Pity me, help me in my weakness. You are strong again, oh, so cruelly, coldly strong. You're killing me. I see you, feel you as some other Lassiter. My master, be merciful. Spare him. His answer was a ruthless smile. She clung the closer to him and leaned her panting breast on him and lifted her face to his. Lassiter, I do love you. It's leaped out of my agony. It comes suddenly with a terrible blow of truth. You are a man. I never knew it till now. Some wonderful change came to me when you buckled on these guns and showed that gray, awful face. I loved you then. All my life I've loved, but never as now. No woman can love like a broken woman. 
if it were not for one thing, just one thing. And yet, I can't speak it. I'd glory in your manhood, the lion in you that means to slay for me. Believe me, and spare Dyer. Be merciful, great, as it's in you to be great. Oh, listen and believe. I have nothing, but I'm a woman, a beautiful woman, Lassiter, a passionate, loving woman, and I love you. Take me, hide me in some wild place, and love me, and mend my broken heart. Spare him, and take me away. She lifted her face closer and closer to his, until their lips nearly touched, and she hung upon his neck, and with strength almost spent, pressed and still pressed her palpitating body to his. "'Kiss me,' she whispered, blindly. "'No, not at your price,' he answered. His voice had changed, or she had lost clearness of hearing. "'Kiss me. Are you a man? Kiss me and save me.' "'Jane, you never played fair with me, but now you're blistering your lips, blackening your soul with lies.' "'By the memory of my mother, by my Bible, no. No, I have no Bible.' "'But by my hope of heaven, I swear I love you.' Lassiter's gray lips formed soundless words that meant even her love could not avail to bend his will. As if the hold of her arms was that of a child's, he loosened it and stepped away. "'Wait, don't go. Oh, hear a last word. May a more just and merciful God than the God I was taught to worship judge me, forgive me, save me. For I can no longer keep silent.' Lassiter, in pleading for Dyer, I've been pleading more for my father. My father was a Mormon master, close to the leaders of the church. It was my father who sent Dyer out to proselyte. It was my father who had the blue ice eye and the beard of gold. It was my father you got trace of in the past years. Truly, Dyer ruined Millie Earn, dragged her from her home to Utah, to Cottonwoods. But it was for my father— if Millie Earn was ever wife of a Mormon, that Mormon was my father. I never knew, never will know, whether or not she was a wife. Blind I may be, Lassiter, fanatically faithful to a false religion I may have been, but I know justice, and my father is beyond human justice. Surely he is meeting just punishment somewhere. Always it has appalled me, the thought of your killing Dyer for my father's sins. So I have prayed— "'Jane, the past is dead. "'In my love for you I forgot the past. "'This thing I'm about to do ain't for myself or Millie or Fay. "'It's not because of anything that's happened in the past, "'but for what is happening right now. "'It's for you. "'And listen, since I was a boy I've never thanked God for anything. "'If there is a God, and I've come to believe it, "'I thank Him now for the years that made me Lassiter. "'I can reach down and feel these big guns "'and know what I can do with them.' And Jane, only one of the miracles Dyer professes to believe in, can save him. Again for Jane Witherstein came the spinning of her brain in darkness, and as she whirled in endless chaos, she seemed to be falling at the feet of a luminous figure, a man, Lassiter, who had saved her from herself, who could not be changed, who would slay rightfully. Then she slipped into utter blackness. When she recovered from her faint, she became aware that she was lying on a couch near the window in her sitting-room. Her brow felt damp and cold and wet. Someone was chafing her hands. She recognized Judkins, and then saw that his lean, hard face wore the hue and look of excessive agitation. "'Judkins!' 
Her voice broke weakly. "'Oh, Miss Witherstein, you're coming round fine. Now just lay still a little. You're all right. Everything's all right.' "'Where is he?' "'Who?' "'Lassiter. "'You needn't worry none about him. "'Where is he? Tell me, instantly.' "'Well, he's in the other room, patching up a few trifling bullet holes.' "'Ah, Bishop Dyer?' "'When I seen him last, a matter of half an hour ago, he was on his knees. "'He was some busy, but he wasn't praying. "'How strangely you talk. I'll sit up. I'm well, strong again. "'Tell me, Dyer on his knees? What was he doing?' "'Well, begging your pardon for blunt talk, Miss Witherstein, "'Dyer was on his knees and not praying.' You remember his big, broad hands? You've seen em raised in blessin' over old gray men, and little curly-headed children like, like Fay Larkin. Come to think of that, I disremember ever hearin' of his liftin' his big hands in blessin' over a woman. Well, when I seen him last, just a little while ago, he was on his knees, not prayin', as I remarked, and he was pressin' his big hands over some bigger wounds. Man, you drive me mad. Did Lassiter kill Dyer? Yes. Did he kill Tull? No. Tull's out of the village with most of his riders. He's expected back before evening. Lassiter will have to get away before Tull and his riders come in. It's sure death for him here. And wuss for you, too, Miss Witherstein. There'll be some of an uprising when Tull gets back. I shall ride away with Lassiter. Judkins, tell me all you saw, all you know about this killing. She realized, without wonder or amaze, how Judkins' one word, affirming the death of Dyer, that the catastrophe had fallen, had completed the change whereby she had been molded or beaten or broken into another woman. She felt calm, slightly cold, strong as she had not been strong since the first shadow fell upon her. "'I just saw about all of it, Miss Witherstein, and I'll be glad to tell you, if you'll only have patience with me,' said Judkins, earnestly." You see, I've been peculiarly interested, and naturally I'm some excited, and I talk a lot that maybe ain't necessary, but I can't help that. I was at the meeting-house where Dyer was holding court. You know he always acts as magistrate and judge when Tull's away. And the trial was for trying what's left of my boy riders that helped me hold your cattle, for a lot of hatched-up things the boys never did. We're used to that, and the boys wouldn't have minded being locked up for a while, or having to dig ditches, or whatever the judge laid down. You see, I divided the gold you give me among all my boys, and they all hid it, and they all feel rich. Howsomever, court was adjourned before the judge passed sentence. Yes, ma'am, court was adjourned, some strange and quick, much as if lightning had struck the meetin' house. I had trouble attending the trial, but I got in. There was a good many people there, all my boys, and Judge Dyer with his several clerks. Also he had with him the five riders who've been guarding him pretty close of late. They was Carter, Wright, Jingison, and two new riders from Stone Bridge. I didn't hear their names, but I heard they was handy men with guns, and they looked more like rustlers than riders. Anyway, there they was, the five all in a row. Judge Dyer was telling Willie Kern, one of my best and steadiest boys, Dyer was telling him how there was a ditch opened near Willie's home letting water through his lot where it hadn't ought to go, and Willie was trying to get a word in to prove he wasn't at home all the day it happened, which was true, as I know, but Willie couldn't get a word in, and then Judge Dyer went on laying down the law, and all to once he happened to look down the long room. 
and if ever any man turned to stone, he was that man. Naturally, I looked back to see what had acted so powerful strange on the judge. And there, halfway up the room, in the middle of the wide aisle, stood Lassiter. All white and black he looked, and I can't think of anything he resembled, unless it's death. Venters made that same room some still and chilly when he called Tull, but this was different. I give my word, Miss Witherstein, that I went cold to my very marrow. I don't know why. But Lassiter had a way about him that's awful. He spoke a word, a name. I couldn't understand it, though he spoke clear as a bell. I was too excited, maybe. Judge Dyer must have understood it, and a lot more that was mystery to me, for he pitched forward out of his chair right onto the platform. Then them five riders, Dyer's bodyguards, they jumped up, and two of them that I found out afterwards were the strangers from Stone Bridge, they piled right out of a window, so quick you couldn't catch your breath. It was plain they wasn't Mormons. Jingison, Carter, and Wright eyed Lassiter for what must have been a second and seemed like an hour, and they went white and strung, but they didn't weaken nor lose their nerve. I had a good look at Lassiter. He stood sort of stiff, bending a little, and both his arms were crooked and his hands looked like a hawk's claws but there ain't no tellin' how his eyes looked. I know this, though, and that is his eyes could read the mind of any man about to throw a gun. And in watching him, of course, I couldn't see the three men go for their guns. And though I was looking right at Lassiter, looking hard, I couldn't see how he drawled. He was quicker than eyesight, that's all. But I seen the red spurtin' of his guns and heard his shots just the very littlest instant before I heard the shots of the riders. And when I turned, Wright and Carter was down, and Jingison, who's tough like a steer, was pulling the trigger of a wobbling gun. But it was plain he was shot through plumb center, and sudden he fell with a crash, and his gun clattered on the floor. Then there was a hell of a silence. Nobody breathed. Certain I didn't, anyway. I saw Lassiter slip a smoking gun back in a belt. "'but he hadn't throwed either of the big black guns, "'and I thought that strange. "'And all this was happening quick. "'You can't imagine how quick. "'There came a scraping on the floor, "'and Dyer got up, his face like lead. "'I wanted to watch Lassiter, "'but Dyer's face, once I seen it like that, "'glued my eyes. "'I seen him go for his gun. "'Why, I could have done better, quicker. "'And then there was a thundering shot from Lassiter, "'and it hit Dyer's right arm, "'and his gun went off as it dropped.' He looked at Lassiter like a cornered sage-wolf, and sort of howled, and reached down for his gun. He'd just picked it off the floor and was raising it when another thundering shot almost tore that arm off, so it seemed to me. The gun dropped again, and he went down on his knees, kind of floundering after it. It was some strange and terrible to see his awful earnestness. Why would such a man cling so to life? Anyway, he got the gun with left hand and was raising it, pulling trigger in his madness, when the third thundering shot hit his left arm, and he dropped the gun again. But that left arm wasn't useless yet, for he grabbed up the gun, and with a shaken aim that would have been pitiful to me, in any other man, he began to shoot. One wild bullet struck a man twenty feet from Lassiter, and it killed that man, as I seen afterwards. Then came a bunch of thundering shots. Nine I calculated after, for they come so quick I couldn't count them and I knew Lassiter had turned the black guns loose on Dyer. "'I'm telling you straight, Miss Witherstein, for I want you to know. Afterward you'll get over it. 
I seen some soul-racking scenes on this Utah border, but this was the awfulest. I remember I closed my eyes, and for a minute I thought of the strangest things, out of place there, such as you'd never dream would come to mind. I saw the sage, and running horses, and that's the beautifulest sight to me. And I saw dim things in the dark, and there was a kind of humming in my ears. And I remember distinctly, for it was what made all these things whirl out of my mind and open my eyes. I remember distinctly it was the smell of gunpowder. The court had about adjourned for that judge. He was on his knees, and he wasn't praying. He was gasping and trying to press his big, flopping, crippled hands over his body. Lassiter had sent all those last thundering shots through his body. That was Lassiter's way. And Lassiter spoke, and if I ever forget his words, I'll never forget the sound of his voice. Proselyter, I reckon you'd better call quick on that God who reveals hisself to you on earth, because he won't be visiting the place you're going to. And then I seen Dyer look at his big hanging hands that wasn't big enough for the last work he set them to, and he looked up at Lassiter. And then he stared horrible at something that wasn't Lassiter, nor anyone there, nor the room, nor the branches of purple sage peeping into the window. Whatever he seen, it was with the look of a man who discovers something too late. That's a terrible look. And with a horrible, understanding cry, he slid forward on his face. Judkins paused in his narrative, breathing heavily while he wiped his perspiring brow. "'That's about all,' he concluded. Lassiter left the meeting house, and I hurried to catch up with him. He was bleeding from three gunshots, none of them much to bother him, and we come right up here. I found you laying in the hall, and I had to work some over you. Jane Witherstein offered up no prayer for Dyer's soul. Lassiter's step sounded in the hall, the familiar soft, silver-clinking step, and she heard it with thrilling new emotions, in which was a vague joy in her very fear of him. The door opened, and she saw him, the old Lassiter, slow, easy, gentle, cool, yet not exactly the same Lassiter. She rose, and for a moment her eyes blurred and swam in tears. "'Are you all, all right?' she asked tremulously. "'I reckon.' "'Lassiter, I'll ride away with you. Hide me till danger is past, till we are forgotten. Then take me where you will. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God.' He kissed her hand with the quaint grace and courtesy that came to him in rare moments. Black Star and Knight are ready, he said, simply. His quiet mention of the black racers spurred Jane to action. Hurrying to her room, she changed to her rider's suit, packed her jewelry and the gold that was left, and all the woman's apparel for which there was space in the saddlebags, and then returned to the hall. Black Star stamped his iron-shod hoofs and tossed his beautiful head, and eyed her with knowing eyes. Judkins, I give bells to you, said Jane. I hope you will always keep him and be good to him. Judkins mumbled thanks that he could not speak fluently, and his eyes flashed. Lassiter strapped Jane's saddlebags upon Black Star and led the racers out into the court. Judkins, you ride with Jane out into the sage. If you see any riders coming, shout quick twice. And Jane, don't look back. I'll catch up soon. We'll get to the break into the pass before midnight, and then wait until morning to go down. Black Star bent his graceful neck and bowed his noble head, and his broad shoulders yielded as he knelt for Jane to mount. 
She rode out of the court beside Judkins, through the grove, across the wide lane into the sage, and she realized that she was leaving Witherstein House forever, and she did not look back. A strange, dreamy, calm peace pervaded her soul. Her doom had fallen upon her, but instead of finding life no longer worth living, she found it doubly significant, full of sweetness as the western breeze, beautiful and unknown as the sage slope, stretching its purple sunset shadows before her. She became aware of Judkin's hand touching hers. She heard him speak a husky good-bye. Then into the place of bells shot the dead-black, keen, racy nose of night, and she knew Lassiter rode beside her. "'Don't look back,' he said, and his voice, too, was not clear. Facing straight ahead, seeing only the waving, shadowy sage, Jane held out her gauntleted hand to feel it enclosed in strong clasp. So she rode on without a backward glance at the beautiful grove of cottonwoods. She did not seem to think of the past of what she left forever, but of the color and mystery and wildness of the sage slope leading down to Deception Pass, and of the future. She watched the shadows lengthen down the slope. She felt the cool west wind sweeping by from the rear, and she wondered at low yellow clouds sailing swiftly over her and beyond. "'Don't look back,' said Lassiter. Thick driving belts of smoke traveled by on the wind, and with it came a strong, pungent odor of burning wood. Lassiter had fired Witherstein House, but Jane did not look back. A misty veil obscured the clear, searching gaze she had kept steadfastly upon the purple slope and the dim lines of canyons. It passed, as passed the rolling clouds of smoke, and she saw the valley deepening into the shades of twilight. Night came on, swift as the fleet racers, and stars peeped out to brighten and grow, and the huge, windy, eastern heave of sage level paled under a rising moon and turned to silver. Blanched in moonlight, the sage yet seemed to hold its hue of purple and was infinitely more wild and lonely. So the night hours wore on, and Jane Witherstein never once looked back. End of chapter 20Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C.